0: As we just sang and as we just heard and joined heart in praying, uh, we have an opportunity th- this morning, I think, and we will as we go through this particular letter in God's Word, of seeing the personality of the writer in ways that just doesn't come out as clear in most of his other books. Or letters. What Paul is doing here in the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians is defending his ministry with the Corinthians, to the Corinthians. And what's especially noteworthy today is how he goes from his defense of what he has been doing and is drawn immediately to the highest thoughts about his God that you can find anywhere in the Bible. It's like he, he talks about what's going on that disturbs him, which many of us have been doing in many ways. But he lets those thoughts carry himself up to the presence of God and be able to talk about who he is and what he has done. So this is really Really, really an encouraging passage. Paul had to respond to the accusations coming from some people in this Corinthian congregation. It was a terrible weight upon him that he talks about in several other places. And if he didn't respond to these accusations, the whole Corinthian church would be in danger of being undermined and torn apart by continuing doing what they had been. And this danger was already becoming evident in the many reports that Paul had been receiving. We saw last week that the main charge against him was that he was not dealing with them in truthfulness. When facing such criticism, it's right and often necessary to offer a defense. And if we are in a position to do so, we should. And since Paul had been in Ephesus for a while and away from this church, it was even more important to try to set these things straight. One of the reasons he began this letter with teaching about how and why God allows suffering among his own people was to provide a biblical answer to the critics using his own suffering to say that he wasn't a true apostle of Christ. In other words, they were claiming that a true apostle should never suffer like Paul had. They were accusing him of acting deviously and insincerely and of writing letters that were shrewd and evasive. In other words, saying that he was saying one thing, but he actually was meaning something else. Their main evidence for these charges was Paul's seeming vacillation in his travel plans, of all things, specifically saying that he was coming for a visit, but then he didn't. Last week we looked at the first two parts of Paul's defense to these accusations. His defense from his own conscience being clear in verses 12 and 14 through 14 of chapter 1. And in verses 15 through 17, his defense about his travel plans not being written in stone, but instead, as he wrote back in 1 Corinthians 16, 7, being based on the Lord's will. If the Lord permits, he would go here and there. Well, today we look at part three of his defense, and that is his own integrity in verses 18 through 22. If you were able, would you please stand as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. And again, notice how he just glides right into looking at his Lord. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Well, the third part of Paul's defense is his own integrity in these verses. And did you notice as we read this passage that what Paul says here and how he says it is kind of striking? Paul's defense, is, does it seem very solemn to you or does it seem almost irreverent and arrogant? as we read that be honest think about how you just reacted to these words you see if paul is not telling the truth what he says here would be would be over the top why because paul is linking his integrity and truthfulness to what to god's truthfulness you see paul grounds his own claim To truthfulness on the faithfulness of God Himself. In other words, Paul uses Himself and God's work in Him as an illustration for the Corinthians that points to God and who God is. He's always, even in the middle of defending Himself, thinking of how to minister to these people, even as He writes. And this means he was as certain as a person can be certain that he had been truthful with the Corinthians. His integrity was a reflection of a characteristic of God that should be seen in every one of us as Christians as we grow in Christ. Another example of the way Paul illustrates the character of God being reflected in his people is in another letter Paul wrote. Actually, it's in several others, but one especially helpful one is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. And I'm going to read this, and notice as I read how Paul instructs the Philippians to think humbly, and he says, This mindset, thinking humbly and living humbly, is yours in Christ. And then he gives one of the most powerful and beautiful descriptions of Christ in the whole Bible. Philippians 2, verses 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The thinking or thoughts of the Apostle Paul easily and often and quickly moved to Jesus. Many think, I agree, that this is his most noticeable and featured outlook as a Christian. He was Christ-centered and has been correctly described as a Christ-occupied man. This can be seen in all of his letters in the New Testament but especially in those parts where he opens his heart as he writes and instructs and encourages people. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, Paul zeroes in on the faithfulness in and through Christ to him, God's faithfulness to him, as he was literally putting his life on the line regularly for his Lord and Savior in a very hostile world. Paul's sufferings as a missionary did not prove that he was not really Christ's Apostle. He had not acted deviously and insincerely when he was with the Corinthians. His letters had not been shrewd and evasive, and his travel plans did not reflect a selfish agenda. Instead, his sufferings mirrored someone else's suffering that he worshipped. Christ, the Savior. And those sufferings worked to comfort the church as they suffered also because he could identify with them just like Christ identifies with all of his own as we suffer. Do we ever think like that? His behavior while with them was straightforward and honest and encouraging and instructional and exhausting but necessary, reflecting how Christ deals with each of us and all of us. And what seemed like that yes and no at the same time in Paul's teaching and instructions was anything but. These people were living in a culture in which they were confronted with all sorts of competing philosophies and affections and complications and and circumstances, situations much like what we're beginning to face 24-7. We can identify with these folks. So there were many complications to work out as teaching and discipleship took place. This seeming vacillation in Paul's traveling plans to the Corinthians was instead an example of how God works out his will through his servants in ways that we may not expect. I hear that very often from my wife, and it's a good reminder. How was your day? Well, it was not what I expected But over the years, that is said with a tone of grace and a smile instead of the world is falling apart and we can't control it. There's a big difference there, folks. In verse 18, we read, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Now, did he just write that to be, look spiritual? Absolutely not. Let me emphasize it again. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. If their word to the Corinthians has not been a conflicting yes and no, well, what was it or what has it been? Well, we see that in verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him, it is always yes. What in the world does that mean? Here, Paul first reminds the Corinthians that he wasn't the only one proclaiming Christ to them. He includes his two helpers. Very special men who had their own calling to help Paul and be missionaries in this rough world that they lived in. God's faithfulness in Christ was also taught by Silvanus and Timothy. And this is confirmed in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, too. One of the marks of the message they were proclaiming was the exclusiveness of Christ being the promised savior that everyone needs. Why do we need to remember this? Why do we need to remember this? Because they were not just offering another philosophy or presenting a way of living victoriously or instructing people on the principles of fulfilling your dreams or how in 20 steps to have a wonderful family and save all your money, and get what you want, or setting up a new and more attractive religious group. A group maybe that the Romans wouldn't bother. All this is going on today, is it not? Art let us in prayer with that in mind, probably from some Psalms. the exclusive answer to empty hearts is only Christ. Nothing else even comes close to working. Many have observed that when Paul uses the term son of God, it's usually in the context of a noticeably elevated writing style, which is doing what? If it's elevated means it's exalting Christ instead of just teaching something that's interesting. As Paul has turned his thoughts upon Christ, as he writes this defense, this is certainly true here, for he continues to describe more and more of the divine character. He just started verse 18, by putting the focus on God's faithfulness, which we need to pay attention to. As surely as God is faithful. And this tells us that God is totally pure and reliable. And as we look at the end of verse 19 and continue in verse 20, we've seen that, Paul ends verse 19 by stressing that Jesus Christ, as the personification of God's truth, never breaks His word. And so as unchangeable, Jesus was, is, and always will be true to His word. So at the end of verse 19, we read, But in Christ, in Him, it is always yes. Yes. What is the it that is always yes? And never confusing back and forth, yes and no. Over church history, <clears throat> there have been some crazy interpretations of what this means. You can get anything you want, it's always yes. And many derivations of that. Well, the it is the word or the message about Christ proclaimed to the Corinthians. It's true. Christ's claims are true. And something else important to note is that Paul also saw Christ as the proof that God is true. Paul is thinking about the many promises that God has given his people in what book that was already available to them. The Old Testament. So he's saying that ultimately all of the promises that God has given his people in the Old Testament have been and are being fulfilled in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. God's plan of redemption, of sending his son as the promised Messiah, has been completed by the life and work of the Messiah on behalf of the people that he came to save. So in sending Christ, God said yes to man's greatest need. By Christ completing his mission another yes. We don't think big enough, do we? Paul continues this point in verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The entire New Testament is a testimony that God's promises have been and are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But that's not good enough for us, is it? We want to promise that this will happen and that this will happen and that we'll never suffer and that we'll always be happy and that our body won't fall apart and that our loved ones won't. We go on and on and on and on. And that's why we're wrought with worry and fear and fear. and it has an effect on us. If we think higher and bigger, then we take all the other issues and we sift them through who He is and what His purposes may be, and we can live in a way that brings glory and honor to Him in the midst of all of it. In Paul's missionary journeys, if he healed or was used to heal somebody or there was some miracle that God did let him do as his apostle, what was was the automatic reaction of some of the most ungodly people on the face of the earth? How did you do that? I want that. Can I pay you for that? I'm following you for however long until I learn how to do that and that is the initial reaction of human beings when God does wondrous works that obviously have gone beyond the bounds of the world that he created in nature, which is why they don't happen all the time or even very much. It's not that God couldn't. If we did that, every one of us had that kind of answer and that victory in every area of everything, we would never die. And who wouldn't want to be a Christian? Because they get what they want, which is not usually the eternal things that God wants, which is bowing before him. That's why we've got to go through this. We are not going to go poof and get out of it. And even going through this doesn't have anywhere close to the level of suffering that most people have suffered every day since time began. We've still got it really good. It's a perspective that we are being drawn to understand better through what's going on in our lives right now. And that's what we need to encourage each other in. The entire New Testament is a testimony that God's promises have been and are being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's why it's through him that we utter, what does Paul say next, this amen to God for his glory. And what does that word mean? You know, we don't hear it around here near enough. And I didn't grow up in a church either that people just said it. I'm not saying just say it because it's cool or you think it's West Texas or whatever the reason may be. But the word means something, and it means that is true. So it's a great word. And let's think carefully about this. When Paul uses the amen word here, what is he actually doing? He's affirming with his whole heart, mind, and strength, everything in his being, that the whole basis of his devotion to Christ. Now think about this. The basis for his devotion to Christ is God's own devotion to fulfilling his word of promise. It's not something we muster up in ourselves. His whole point of view is God is devoted completely to fulfilling his word of promise. He is faithful. So, Paul's devotion to Christ is based on God's own devotion to his own promises and word. That is worth some pondering and thinking. It's wonderful. So, the next question should be obvious. What's the basis of your being here this morning, your devotion to Christ, of your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ, of your living today and then getting up tomorrow, of your desire and plans for the future, of your desire to run your race well? What is the basis of your devotion to the God you proclaim? We need to ask that every day, don't we? Now, if you're there and you're asking that question and being honest in your own heart, there's a lot going on. and We can go on here and appreciate then in a much deeper way what Paul says in verses 21 and 22. Because he got to that point. You know, he makes very clear in so many passages in in his letters that his devotion to the Lord and his calling from the Lord to be a missionary in a world where his life was always a danger, that wasn't even the biggest concern. He was more concerned and got more exhausted and worn out And lost heart working with people who claimed to be Christians and they just stayed apathetic or went back to their old ways or weren't serious. That was his biggest, biggest heartache. And we need to grasp with that and realize how important that is to to note. Verse 21 says, and it is God who establishes us. Now, this is, look, it's God who establishes us with you in Christ. Catch that? I mean he was in Ephesus right now he didn't even have to be there to go through it face to face with all this criticism and can you imagine walking in on the Lord's Supper and having people drunk and keeping other people from sharing the meal you can go through some of these scenarios and it's just like most of us would go in take a look and just turn around and leave forever did he He still loves them. He knows that God's grace has begun in their hearts. And so look what he says. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. What does that do to the way he's feeling? I wish we could have a question and answer right here. This is one place that would be good. He still wants to be with them. And he takes it back to what God has done in them to go, well, I'm not just going to put up with them. I mean, our church is big enough, even being this small, that we can stand on the opposite side of wherever and stay away from people that really bug us or that are doing crazy things that we don't think is too wild and nice but he jumps right in who establishes us with you in Christ he's saying that god put us together he made us christians and put us together this is his design we didn't have a survey that says would you like to be here and then we vet you and we go no you don't you're not this personality type, you've got these issues, you're not this economic level, you're not this social thing, you're not any other thing. It's not the way it works. So if we start here, what does that do with your feelings? It takes care of them. You trust Christ? He joined us together? Go for it. Enjoy the differences. Enjoy the some grow fast, some grow slow. Most of us go through all that different times in our lives. And this is how we live together, with this as our cornerstone. Christ is our cornerstone. The word establishes means to strengthen or confirm or make you stand firm, and it is in the present tense. It's the There's four participles right here, and the first one is in the present tense, and it goes on, and the rest of them are in the aorist. That means it's already been done. So look at this. In other words, God's continuous strengthening of believers in their faith and his progressive enriching of their knowledge in Christ is what he is talking about. We don't even have to think about is God with us. And does he care about this? It's already been established. And it's going on now, right now, no matter how we're responding to God's word or what's going on in your family or who you're concerned about. God is establishing you more and more in him with the people that he's put you with as believers. What's another word for that? We call it what? Spiritual growth. He creates, he strengthens and sustains the fellowship that believers have in Christ. And this is important. We're going through all this missing and looking weird now. I mean, this is really weird looking from up here. Some of you are more colorful than others. Some of you have designer masks. Some of you just white and blue is fine. There's so many things that we can giggle about. But he sustains the fellowship that we have in Christ. And he gives us ways to still care about one another when we can't see each other as much as we want. And we need to look at that part of this spectrum and not the other half where we just lose perspective immediately. He's on his throne. There's things that we can accomplish like this that we couldn't accomplish being all crazy together all the time. And we need to explore what those are and how to minister, maybe how to write letters again, you know, strange things like that. Now, even though there were reasons many of the Corinthians were a mess, would you agree? Yes, they were a mess. Paul still affirms that their characters were being changed by the actions of God through his word. That was the basis of his ministry. We become reliable ourselves by relying on the supremely reliable word of God. Isn't that a great quote? I had to put that in here. We become reliable ourselves by relying on the supremely reliable Word of God. Now, the rest of these key verbs, as I said, are in a tense that indicates what has already taken place at conversion. Verse 21, the last half. And it is God who has anointed us. Anointed has a service-oriented context. In other words, meaning that when someone was anointed, like in the Old Testament, it was a sign that their equipping for some kind of service or task came from God and not from something in themselves. Remember, too, that Christ actually means what? The anointed one. So we are actually and initially anointed to serve in ways that remind us of or reflect His devotion and willing submission to God's will and purpose. Is that possible? Yes, I think it is. He's combining these thoughts. Of course we're not anointed to be the Messiah, But what he's saying was when he calls you to himself, it's with a plan. He made you a certain way, and he's got something in you that he will use as you trust him to make it happen. Some unique way to minister to people. Thank goodness we are not all alike. And you people sitting out there, They have several kids. I know, because I was one of them at one point, where you go, I am so glad that each of my kids is not exactly like one another. I would be stark raving, crazy lunatic if that was true. But what do we do? We go, well, they don't do this, and this one doesn't do that. Instead of enjoying the differences and shaping that, getting ready to shoot that arrow off so that when you leave and they come back when they're adults, they actually may like each other and they may provide fellowship in your home that you can't even believe is happening just because they've grown up with different in different ways with different purposes for God to use them. It's kind of a picture of how he does the church as well. So this is, a sign that they're equipping for some kind of service came from God and not from something in themselves. Now, this may also imply that our service can only be fulfilled in that fellowship with Christ, which our union with Him makes possible. That's a lot to think about as well. Equipped. Established with you in Christ. Verse 22, we then read, besides being established and anointed and who has also put his seal on us, his seal of ownership and authenticity is on you if you are his. It's... Cool to see kids, when they hear this, they start looking in the mirror. Okay, where is that? Is there a mark somewhere? Now, water baptism would be the initial visible evidence, but I believe this goes a little farther. It's something that happens that people want to see. And the last half of this verse completes this picture. What does it say in verse 22? And God has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Isn't that how people see evidence of the authenticity of your proclamation that you belong to him? Which means when people that profess Christ are living in a manner that does anything but profess that someone is their Lord, they're doing what they want to do, how they want to do it, That raises a whole lot of questions. We need to know this, that he's given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And that's why the Holy Spirit is listed here next by Paul. His indwelling of every believer happens at conversion. It's not something you may even know he did. But he comes to dwell in your heart. And that starts the process of spiritual growth. It's within our hearts that the Holy Spirit works to change our conduct. And it doesn't usually just happen all at once, does it? There are areas and closets that haven't been opened. And He works. He knows how much we can handle and when to make things evident so that we can address them and learn to trust Him. Now, Paul has a parallel passage of this particular notion that uh, is very helpful, and that's in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. It's at the beginning of that letter. And it helps clear up some questions that we may have here. There he writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so, see that? When you believed in him, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now most of these words here in our letter are actually words used in commerce, in the commercial world. Legal statements. Guarantee is one of those words. It's a commercial word used here by Paul that he likes. For a reason. It means a deposit. You have been bought. The first deposit is the Holy Spirit. It's the first installment that ensures the following installments will follow. So, Paul has used a word used in commerce to communicate a very important Christian term and idea. We are bought, we belong to Him. And the Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee, his guarantee. So not only was this implying a legal pledge by our faithful God, but it's also what? A foretaste of what is to come. We don't get it all now. We want it all now, but we don't get it all now. But it is what we can hope in because it's a certain hope and God is faithful to keep his promises. The Holy Spirit is given to us to dwell in our heart, and that is quite amazing to realize. In fact, coming up later in this book, I almost think he saves this. You know how you save something just mind-blowing enough for the right time? Because in chapter 6, verse 16, in the midst of a whole bunch of other behavior issues, he says, We are the temple of the living God. That's both scary, almost unbelievable, and too good to be true. That God would reside in our hearts in the person of his spirit. puts a whole different perspective on every day of the week. I can only really say one thing about all these incredible truths just here in this short couple of verses that inform me of who I am in Christ because of Christ and God's faithful plan to save an undeserving sinner like me. And the word is right here in our text. Amen. To you, O oh Lord, be all glory. Let's pray. Oh God. We confess that we we do not think consistently enough ever about who you are why you sent Christ, how need we are, how you met that need in him, how you've turned our lives into having a real purpose with eternal ramifications, that you've blessed us no matter where we are, no matter how alone we may feel, no matter what our situation, you are with us. You literally live in us. That you have given us a purpose and anointed us for some special purpose that nobody may even see, really. There's so many ways that we can minister to one another. But Lord, knowing that and that we belong to you should be more than enough. For us to get up every day thank you for that day knowing that you will accomplish your purposes through us even if it's one of the toughest days in our whole lives that you are with us you are walking with us you're inside of us and you will get us through it and lord you will bring us to yourself at the end and we will understand all the purposes and meanings and plans and your doings, and we will be in a state of wonder and awe as those things are made plain when we spend eternity with you. Oh, God, give us a realization and an encouragement in the hope that we have in Christ. Give us the wisdom to know how to be creative in times that make us uh, think and do things in, in different ways or stretch us in ways that we're not really comfortable with. And thank you that as we do that, as we trust you, that we'll see your growth and, and know your presence even more deeper than, than ever. And it's in that regard that we can say amen to you, O Lord of all glory, for your glory, We love you. We thank you for sending Christ for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand for our benediction. I'm figuring that by October, every one of you will be saying this finally. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.